of Mark. This is week nine. Um, so it's an appropriate gospel to continue to, to walk through uh, during, the, during the Advent season especially. And we've, we've been trying to answer the question from the gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's, that's essentially the question that Mark is asking for us. And then he's, he's, he's writing this gospel to answer that question for us at the same time. So, so we're discovering more and more about who is Jesus from the gospel of Mark. And, and today's text is no different. So we are in Mark chapter 2. And we will look at verses 13 through 17 this afternoon. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'll read those verses for us now. Mark writes, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, for this season of Advent. Thank you that it, it stirs up within us um, just that desire to, to, for, for newness, that desire for something different that this season uh, brings, even if it's in the mall or um, just with family coming in town here and there, and um, just the the difference of this season is, and it it only happens because uh, Jesus is Jesus came. Um, even in our in our own secular world, it, it it it's because you came. And so, Father, I pray as we um, continue to dig into this gospel that you would continually show us. Uh, who Jesus is, make him uh, even more clear to us today than he ever has been in our entire lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I never liked when I was in college uh, was when the professor would tell you, they would get to kind of a low, I always thought this was a professor's way of like getting through class and not having to teach. And he would say, I want you to circle up with your neighbors and discuss this question. And I always just didn't, I just never liked that. It was always, most of the time it was people that I was around that I didn't know or didn't care to know. And so it always made for an awkward conversation. But I wonder if we did that today, and we're not going to do that today. But I wonder if we did that today, if I said circle up and I want you to ask this question to each other and I want you to discuss it and come up with some answers. And the question is this, what is the world's biggest problem? What is the world's biggest problem? Now, maybe some of you are clever and you looked at the title of the sermon, so you already know what my answer is and what Mark's answer is, and so you already have it. So now I want you to ask yourself the question, what would my neighbor say the world's biggest problem is? 
Now, depending on who your neighbor is, maybe it's Donald Trump. Maybe it's those liberals. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's school shootings and and gun violence as a whole. Maybe it's the news media. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's global warming. Maybe it's just all of these things that are just combined together. And while all of these pose some problems, they're only the symptoms of the major problem, which is sin. The theologian theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines sin in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He defines it as this, very simple. This is what he defines sin as. It's a vandalism of shalom. A vandalism of shalom. A vandalism of God's peace is what sin is. And you and I are the vandals. I can tell you this right now. I have a, a newly minted uh, 15-year-old driver, and so we go out for these adventures on the road with a 15-year-old. And yesterday, uh, we were sitting at a stoplight, and she uh, was waiting to take a left-hand turn, and she waited uh, entirely uh, too long for the person behind her who began to just lay on, her, lay on the horn. There's a student driver sticker in the back, started laying on the horn, and then pulls up next to us as he's passing us and is yelling at us. So, of course, being a good dad and a good example, I started yelling back at him. And he's a student, just a student driver. And, um, of course, he flips us the bird, and that was Ashton's inauguration into driving. But I was a vandal of God's peace in that moment. I was in sin. But thankfully, we are not left to ourselves. Jesus hasn't left us in our sin. And, and Jesus, he's, and, and he's come. He hasn't left us in our sin. And, and by his coming, he shows us that. And so Mark tells us from our text that he does two things in his coming. He does two things. And it's in your worship guide there if you want to take notes or follow along. The first thing he does is that he calls sinners to himself. And the second thing he does is that he heals the sinner. So first he calls the sinner. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. Mark is writing, He went out again beside the sea, speaking about Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So we see in verse 13 that the the crowds have not subsided yet. Jesus is still being followed by by a a massive amount of people. They want to be close to him. They want to experience whatever he has to offer them, whether it be healing or what have you. And even as he tries to get away in these desolate places, so he's going out to the seaside, which was a desolate place. It was meant to be a quiet kind of uh, retreat type area where nobody was around, not uh, unlike what we have in America today where everybody goes to the beach, and the crowds still follow him. The crowds still mob him. He can get no relief. 
Yet Jesus continues to do what he says he's come to do, which is to preach the gospel, to teach the Bible. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of all of his busyness, he still makes room for the individual, the one person. And in this case, it's a man named Levi. Look at verse 14 again. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, there's two details from the text, from this particular verse, that Mark tells us right away about this man, Levi. It's it's about the only thing he tells us. One is that he's the son of Alphaeus. Okay, I don't know who Alphaeus is. I don't have any background on this. I just know that this is... This is Levi's father, is the son of Alphaeus. The second thing we know about him is that he is a tax collector. So he's the son of Alphaeus, and he's a tax collector. So from these two details, what Mark wants you to know is that, that Levi is a Jewish, all caps, a Jewish tax collector. Okay? Now hold on to that. Because we also need to know that this man, Levi, if you didn't know already, is the same person called Matthew in the first of the four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. This is Matthew, the author of the Gospel. So it's not clear whether Jesus changed his name like he later changes Peter's name or that he already has two names. But nonetheless, Mark is putting before us the B.C. life of Matthew, the before Christ life of Matthew. So most of us know Matthew as an apostle. We know him as an evangelist. We know him as a gospel writer. He is a man who is is zealous for the truth and reality of Christ to be made known to the Jewish people. This is is Matthew's primary uh, audience uh, in his gospel. He's writing to the Jews, to share the gospel with them. But before Christ, Matthew, or Levi, as we know him in our text, was zealous for the almighty dollar. So much so that he puts himself in service to the Roman government, and the Roman government at this particular time, in the first century, was the enemy of the Jews. So Levi, a Jew, puts himself in the service of an enemy to extort money, not from the Romans, but from the Jewish people as a tax collector. So when a Jew entered this profession, the tax collecting profession, he was automatically detested amongst his people. He was an outcast from society. He was excommunicated from his religious community. He was no longer allowed in the synagogue. No longer allowed. And he brought shame and disgrace not only upon himself, but his entire family was now tainted with this title. Well, you're the son of a tax collector. And so they didn't have any privileges either. So this is why, if you were wondering, this is why the scribes give them their own separate categories. If you notice that over and over again, Mark shows us that there's tax collectors and sinners. 
Not just sinners, but tax collectors and sinners. And they, and they did that to distinguish them. That they were not just sinners, but they were worse than sinners. They were tax collectors. So a tax collector, we could say, was bottom of the barrel scum. It doesn't get any worse than a tax collector. Worse than a mere sinner. A tax collector. And yet, Jesus calls him to follow. Of all the people who are following him at this particular time, of all the people that he's kind of having to weave in and out of and interact with, and I'm sure there's some really good people there who are not tax collectors, the perfect son of God draws out Levi from the world. Which reminds us that no one is out of reach of the gospel. No one is out of Jesus' reach. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. No one is out of the gospel's reach. Now, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, think about your life B.C. Think about your life before Christ. And I can guarantee you that you were not looking for Christ when he found you. And the reason I can guarantee you that is because the Bible says that's true. You were not looking for Jesus when he found you. Your condition was lostness. Your condition was wandering around in the desert aimlessly, far from home. Your condition was darkness. And Jesus found you in that darkness. He found you in that wandering. He found you in your lostness. And let me just say that apart from this divine call by your Savior, you would still be in that darkness. You would still be there. And the reason being is because you were so sunk in sin that you would have never turned to Christ on your own. It was, it's impossible to do so. So Christ must call you first in order for you to follow him. So it's, it's only his call that draws sinners like Levi and like you and like me out from the world. If Jesus didn't, didn't call uh, Levi to follow him, he would still be a tax collector. He would still be stuck in his sin. He would still be an outcast to society. Now, the truth and reality of verses 13 through 15 concerning who Jesus is, uh, when we're asking that question, if we're going to ask the question, who is Jesus of, of just these first three verses, we would answer the question with, Jesus is one that calls sinners to himself. That's who he is. He is one that calls sinners to himself. That's what he came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says it like this in his first letter to um, his young disciple Timothy. When he's writing to him, he says, Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, which simply means listen to this. 
Listen, Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. Well, actually, there's no period there. Paul goes on to say, of which I am the foremost. Which we could all say. Period. So here's your catechism question. This is Kevin's catechism. So, And I'll ask the question and answer it for you. But keep it in mind, the question is, are you a sinner? And the answer is, yes. You're all sinners. And I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And it's not just me saying that to try to condemn you, but it's the Bible says that no one is without sin except Christ. And if you think you're without sin, you deceive yourself. You're lying to yourself. It's simply not true. Now, the comfort in this is that Jesus came to save you. So that's comfort. To know that at the same time, I am a sinner, and Jesus came to save me. So when I was, I was in campus ministry some years ago at Emory University, I got to spend time with a well-known uh, Christian geneticist who came on campus to give some talks to the students there and um, to do some kind of apologetic type type stuff. And his his name was Praveen Sethupathi. He's 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 a brilliant brilliant man. Well, in the course of the day, uh, he had to do a Q and A session with students. And so he was asked this question, which he probably knew was coming. Uh, what if a homosexual gene was discovered? What if it was discovered? He's talking to a geneticist here. Wouldn't that prove that people are born certain ways and should be so inclined to live in the way that they are born? Right? Well, without missing a beat... Dr. Sethupathi says no. No, what that proves is that our brokenness, our sin, the fallenness of creation affects us in every way possible, even down to the smallest molecule of our body. That we are sinners all the way down. That there is not a part of us that is not affected by the fall. Levi knew this. He knew that he was a sinner all the way down. And if he and if he forgot, his people quickly reminded him as they passed by and as they came by to, to pay their taxes to him. I'm sure he got spit upon often by his people. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was somebody who was in need. And he knew when Christ called him, he was found. He knew that. And the the way that we know that he knows that is found in verse 15. And you may not have caught it because it's so subtle, but look there at verse 15 with me again. Mark records this for us, and he says, And as he reclined at table in his house, talking about Levi, many, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So what's happening here is when Levi is, has this encounter with Jesus, he's called to, called to follow Jesus, the thing that Levi does first is throw a party. 
He throws this feast in his home for Jesus and his disciples for what has just ha- what has just happened in his life. And the people that he invites are all of his scoundrel friends, all of the tax collectors and all of the sinners, along with Jesus and his disciples, are invited to this party. And Jesus is no wallflower either. He doesn't just kind of uh, sheepishly like kind of drink his drink in the corner while while waiting for an opportune time to, to leave this awkward situation. No, Jesus is fully involved in this party. This is what Mark tells us. He tells us that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining at table with Jesus. He also shows us that Levi was reclining at table, but... People weren't reclining with Levi. They were reclining with Jesus. Now, if that, if that language of reclining at table sounds uh, awkward to you, it should sound awkward to you. Because if you reclined on me at my dinner table, I might have to escort you out. That would be a little weird in our culture. But during that culture, it was very much an intimate way in which you were just you welcomed people. So they you would physical touch was it was it was a normal thing at dinner at these feasts. So you would lean back against people. You would you would lean over uh, onto the floor and and be very relaxed and very comfortable with people. And this is what was happening at this party with Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners were reclining with Jesus. So it was a sign of of true intimacy, real intimacy. It was a sign of of welcome and acceptance, true hospitality, you could say. So much so uh, was Jesus involved with Levi's guest that it it appeared that Jesus had become the true host of the party, actually. And he was. All of the attention was drawn to Jesus. And this simple act of reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners was revolutionary. It was radical. It was, it was, cra- it was unheard of for someone of Jesus' stature to do this with these types of people. So Jesus is not just present at the party. He's not just a guest at the party with tax collectors and sinners, but he's now hosting it. So what Mark wants us to see is this was not just a a mere matter of breaking bread with other people. They weren't just having this dinner and this feast together and they just kind of welcomed each other and they moved on. But this was the Messiah of God Extending to these scoundrels, to these outcasts, to these sinners, fellowship with the God of the universe. This was the God of the universe sitting with outcasts, sitting with the scum of the earth, sitting with those no one else wanted to be around. So this meal was an extension of the grace of God to them. It was an anticipation of the consummation when Jesus will sit down with sinners in the kingdom of God. And the only way that Jesus sits down with sinners as our great high priest is if he offers the perfect sacrifice. There's no other way the priest sits down. 
unless it's finished. And this is what this meal was signifying to these sinners. So the basis of this table fellowship, this simple meal with these sinners, was forgiveness. This is what Jesus was speaking to them, that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. It was, it was a glimpse of the, of the great heavenly feasts that will overshadow any feast that you will have this Advent season with family and friends. And Mark tells us in verse 15 that many tax collectors and sinners became followers of Jesus. Many tax collectors and sinners became followers of Jesus. They, they, they were going right along with Levi and their belief of who this man Jesus was. Well, just like any uh, good gathering, awkward conversation uh, ensues. So since verse 6 of chapter 2, uh, the religious leaders have begun to, to, to not only watch Jesus, but they've begun to question Jesus. So they're seeing these crowds be stirred up. They're seeing these, these acts that Jesus is performing. They're seeing these people be uh, healed and be forgiven of their sins. And they begin to question everything. And so from here on out in Mark's gospel, uh, they will be a constant presence. They will not go away. They will always be there in the crowds, questioning and provoking and, and trying to trap Jesus in his words. But their main concern with Jesus is whether or not he has the authority he claims to have. And one of the most important things, or one of the most outrageous things to the teachers of the law, is that Jesus claims to have power to forgive sin. So this act at the table, this act of forgiveness, is questioned. By the Pharisees and the scribes. It's questioned by the religious leaders of the day. How can this man forgive people of their sins? How can this man heal sinners? How can he do this? Look at verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So in verse 16, this is, this is after the party is broken up. So you can kind of imagine them kind of filing out of Levi's home. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to immediately ask Questions. I don't know if they were in the house or if they were outside the house or whatever, but they notice they notice they don't they don't ask Jesus directly, but they ask his disciples. They ask his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do this? The disciples don't answer. I imagine and, and I'm guessing uh, that they don't have an answer to the question either. They're just as dumbfounded as the teachers of the law are. So essentially what they're asking is, if this man is a true teacher of the law, as he claims, why does he associate with those who blatantly break the law? 
Why does he do that? Now, you have to know, when, when, the, when the Pharisees speak of breaking the law, they are not talking about the Mosaic law directly. They're not saying, they're not saying that Jesus is actually breaking the law of the Bible. What they're saying the law is, is how they interpret the Mosaic law. So they're saying Jesus is breaking our laws. Jesus is breaking our rules. And he's hanging out with people and eating with people who do the same thing. Why would he do that? So these tax collectors and sinners were called tax collectors and sinners not because they were breaking the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, although I'm sure some of them probably were, but because they refused to adhere to the Pharisaic interpretations of the law. So the religious leaders are thinking, logically, if Jesus is a teacher of the law, which he's, which he's saying that he is and demonstrating that he is, if he's a teacher of the law, he should know better than to eat with tax collectors and sinners who break the law. So it's, it's the only logical way to think. You can't blame them. So they're, they're saying, we, look, we, we are law keepers and they are law breakers. We're separate. We are the righteous and they are the unrighteous. We are the healthy and they are the sick. And the healthy and sick, if you've been in a pediatric waiting room, I'm sure some of you have this year already, are separate. Which is exactly where Jesus wants them to go in their thinking. Because Jesus is the one who heals the sick. And not just the physically sick, but the spiritually sick. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he heard their question. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus hears the question and like like a man responds directly to the askers. He doesn't go through his disciples like the Pharisees did, but he asks them, uh, he tells them exactly what he wants them to hear. Those who are healthy, Pharisees, have no need of a physician. Me, Jesus. But those who are sick, the tax collectors and the sinners, they do have, a, have need of a physician. They do have need of Jesus. So this saying was actually a very familiar expression during this day and time. It was a familiar proverb. The Pharisees and the scribes would have would have recognized it right off the bat. They would have understood what Jesus was trying to communicate with them, and they would have agreed with it at face at, at just face value. They would have agreed with it and said, "Yes, that's true." But Jesus turns this expression upside down on them. Because what Jesus is saying is that you who think you are healthy, you who think you have it all together, you who think that you're so righteous and above everybody else, you're actually not healthy. 
and you're actually far from the kingdom. But it's those who are sick that are the ones Jesus came to call. It's those who are sick that Jesus came to heal. Those are the ones who are, who are actually close to the kingdom of God. So saying all that, I wonder how you see yourself. And I know if, if you're like me, you, you try to see yourself in the best possible light. I'm not really that bad overall. Most people uh, like me. Um, I'm fairly decent to the to those around me. I'm I'm a pretty nice person. I'm I think I'm I'm somewhat generous. But when I let this sort of of thinking embed itself within me, uh, in, embed it in in my soul, I slowly start to drift away from my need of Christ. I mean, I I become self righteous. That, that, that Kevin is all I need. I, need. I don't need anybody else. So I start to see myself as one who has no need of a physician. I'm healthy. I need nothing. And so Jesus then becomes an example that feeds my own piety and pride. He's no longer a savior to me. Because it's not until you recognize that not only are you sick, but that you have a mortal disease that is infesting your body and soul called sin. And it does. It affects you spiritually, but also physically. The wages of sin is death. It's a physical death as well. And there is only one who can heal you. You can't heal yourself. Your friends can't heal you. Your family can't heal you. No amount of love from any person in this world can heal you of this mortal disease infesting your body and soul. The 19th century preacher J.C. Ryle wrote this. He says, To feel our sins and to know our sickness is the beginning of real Christianity. Not despair. It's the beginning of real Christianity. When you can know your or feel your sin and know your sickness, that's when you begin to know that you are a Christian. To be sensible of our corruption and abhor our own transgression is the first symptom of, of spiritual health. So Jesus did not come as some suppose or as the world would have liked him to. He didn't come as, as just a lawgiver. He didn't come as a, as a human king here to set up his physical kingdom. He didn't come just as a mere teacher or an example or a social justice warrior. Or a political party leader. Jesus did not come to do any of that. And if any of those things had been his purpose, as the world and sometimes the church likes to paint him, there would be no hope for humanity. None. But thankfully it wasn't. And Jesus states his purpose at the end of verse 17. 
He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. Now notice, Jesus drops the tax collector from this sentence. Because he's he's putting together or lumping all sinners into one category, as if to say, you're all on level playing field when it comes to sin. There is not one of us that is higher than another in this room. We are all in need of the same physician's healing touch. And I know I'm standing up behind a lectern and teaching from the Bible, preaching from the Bible, so it may appear that I don't need that, but I need that too. I need that same physician's healing touch, just like you do. We're all equal in that way. No matter who you are, teacher of the law or tax collector. So finally, I think the the conclusion of all this or the application for this is is simple. It's, It's recognizing that while you are a sinner all the way down, every part of you, that sin is your biggest problem and your neighbor's biggest problem, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and Jesus' declarative action that we are celebrating over the next four weeks during the Advent season, that this declarative action by, by coming to earth as a human baby reminds us that he is reversing the curse and that he is making all things new. Amen. Let me pray for us.